Today our meditation is taken from Psalms 119 once again. And it reads, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your ways. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget you. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. The psalmist uses that metaphor of the lamp and the light. The word of God, his truth, his unfailing truth, shows us right where we need to go, why, where we need to make those moral decisions, those questions, shows us right how to do it. And we have Jesus Christ, the great giver of life. The reason why we can, right? The Holy Spirit that lives within us and dwells within it. We cannot do that without the Holy Spirit. And we cannot do that without one another. It's amazing, the fellowship of Jesus Christ together. Oh, how precious that is. How precious. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a precious, precious promise. Father, we just thank you this morning that we can dwell in that. We can sing in about it. We can rejoice. And someday we'll be gathered at the great supper where there'll be no more tears, no more dying, no more saying goodbye, no more hurts, no more darkness, no more evil in your presence. Father, we're so grateful that you have called us and we have responded to your grace. Oh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that gift of life. That gift of life. We appreciate you today, Lord. We appreciate the presence of your holiness, your completeness, Lord. You are calling us in to be whole and complete just as you are. And we thank you, Father, because we only can do that through your Holy Spirit, through your word that shows us where we are and where we need to go. We thank you for that today. Amen and amen. Well, good morning to everybody. So open your Bibles, if you would. Uh, Mark chapter 14. Um, uh, looking ahead, I know that's, a, that's ahead of where we are in our study. We're going to go back to chapter 12 and, and kind of get back in sync. Um, but this morning, um, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do. Um, rather than, I say this mostly for our, for our guests, in case this is new for you, um, instead of looking at, you know, the text and expanding the text, I need to speak to an issue that I've become 
very much aware of in, in recent months. So this is going to be issue-oriented. Don't do this very often. Uh, but I think it's, it's important that we do this. I'm also conscious of the day and the time. I'm, I'm aware of the uh, large pagan festival that goes on later today. And I'm, I want to, you know, I want to, you know, honor that and respect that your 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 commitment to that. I'm not going to say any more about that. I'm obviously I'm, you know, teasing when I say that, you know, it's only partially pagan. Yeah. Uh, our text is Mark chapter 14, verse 21. Uh, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again, Lord, just for the marvelous day we share, Lord. It has been such the beauty of this morning is just a reminder of your goodness poured out to us. We thank you. Amen. Um, this, this verse in Mark is just kind of a starting point. It's a reference point. Again, we're not going to be expanding on it a great deal. Uh, because I want to talk about an issue that I become aware of and very, very concerned. Uh, it, is a, it is a doctrine that is occurring, and it's, been, it's expanding a lot. It's, being, it's growing a lot, uh, primarily in, in Protestant evangelical circles, but it is in no way confined to that. It is showing up in the full spectrum of Christian teaching, uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Every aspect of the Protestant faith, evangelical, fundamental, charismatic, the whole, everybody is being affected by it. And we're talking about universalism. Now, how many of you are familiar with that as a doctrine? Universalism, you've heard it, okay. Um, I did this um, in another setting, and like every hand went up, man, am I behind the, you know, behind the eight ball on this one? But it is a growing uh, teaching, it's a growing doctrine. In short, in short, it teaches that... Um, Nobody goes to hell. I mean, not forever. Those who, you know, die outside of faith in Christ, they, they will experience some kind of a hell-like experience. There will be punishment, but it's always uh, with an end to, to redemption, always with an end to reconciliation. Um, uh, no one, no one is going to experience what the followers of universalism, the teachers of universalism, uh, uh, describe as eternal conscious torment. That's kind of how they describe the typical Christian expectation of what hell would be, eternal conscious torment. Going through eternity, conscious of suffering apart from the present. Nobody experiences that in universalism. Everybody, one way or another, gets saved. It's an attractive teaching. It really is. And, and, and there's no two ways about it. I mean, I like that thought because it relieves us of something that every one of us, I would think, struggles with. And that would be, you know, the idea that people that have never heard the gospel, what happens with them? I can't, it's unconscionable that they would spend an eternity without God, eternity in some kind of torment. Or uh, even those that, you know, have rejected God, that, I mean, I can understand judgment, but eternal judgment? We, we struggle with that idea, especially in light of a God who is described as love. Uh, the Bible is very clear that God is love. He, everything, he, his actions are described as love. He's got a great love for us. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. So it really is attractive because it allows us to reconcile that. 
you know. Of course, there's always, you know, the outlier, you know, the Hitler, you know, yeah, leave him there forever. We're okay with that. But for the vast majority of people, it, it is a challenge, and there's a temptation, especially for those who, you know, maybe they're in ministry, pastors, preachers, teachers that are concerned about people coming, or anybody, we should all be clean about people coming to the faith. This message of a, of a big, mean God, it has kind of a, a pushback to it. It holds a lot of people away. At least that's the justification they give. So um, I'm going to talk about universalism um, because it is becoming so popular and it certainly has implications for our faith. What I want to do first is, is take some time to, to go through it in more depth, define it a little bit better, uh, point out some of the problems with it, and then finally um, demonstrate how I believe the truth, even if it's hard truth, is always better. Truth is always better. So first, let's get into a little bit of the definition of exactly what universalism is. Again, everybody gets saved. Uh, those who turn to Christ in faith, you know, we're, that's the best place to be because you get to go right into the presence of God. No negative experience. That's what we're headed for. Uh, but those who have not heard, those who have refused, those who have rejected, there's a punishment. But it's always redemptive. It's always with the purpose of turning people towards God. Um, and ultimately, everyone ends up turning to God. A hell itself, the punishment that people experience, is different than we typically think of hell as being. Um, it's not, you know, Dante's Inferno with flames raging and, you know, God going, <laughs> trying to get him as hot as he can, right? It's not that at all. Um, it, is a, it is a torment that is the product of being left with whatever sin kept someone from God. So let's say a person is all about just greed. They just want to accumulate stuff and money. And well, that's what, that's what kept them from God. Well, they'll be left with that. That's what they'll get, but nothing else. No way to share it, no way to enjoy it, no way to express any kind of thanksgiving, no way to orient themselves completely apart from everything but that wealth. Or if, if it's some kind of a sensual appetite, whether for something sexual or if it's alcohol, whatever, if it's drugs, whatever, whatever consumed a person, that's what they'll get and nothing else. And in, in the passage of time, experiencing the emptiness of that will cause that person to turn to God. You can see how this would line up really well, you know, with the, with the prodigal son, the parable in Luke chapter 15, who is left to his, his own ways and then eventually comes to his senses. Expression Jesus used. He came to his senses and returns to God. So that's how hell will work. Always redemptive and never permanent. Because sooner or later, everybody, even the worst of the worst, will figure out that life apart from God's a bad idea. And they'll turn to God in repentance. Always redemptive. Very appealing. It paints God in such a more attractive light, doesn't it? It does. Let's be honest. And we it's, it's a struggle to see God sending somebody to hell forever. In detail, it's a little bit more complicated than that, uh, and that's where things get really interesting. Uh, the scripture verses that are used to establish this doctrine, beyond those which say, you know, God is loving and God forgives, um, they go quite a bit beyond that. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, are a real foundational and I should know, it's been over the last two, three months, I've really been into this, talking, 
with people reading materials out there, having people send me stuff, um, that I've kind of accumulated this, this deep concern. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brethren, this is Peter talking to the, the Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost. And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, for whom heaven has received or heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Now, did you spot it? It wouldn't necessarily stand out at first reading, but it's right there. Until the period of restoration of all things. Fundamental to the teaching of universalism isn't simply that God has so much love that he can't send somebody to hell, but that it's center to God's plan that all things be restored, all things be redeemed, right? And the phrase that occurs in this passage is the key phrase for universalistic teaching. If you were to read it, the phrase that would show up is, you have to look to make sure I get it right, is apokatathesia. Apokatathesia, that's one word. Apokatathesia. And it means to take something that was in a high place, that just fallen to a low place, and restore it to its high place idea of restoration. At the core of universalistic teaching is the idea that everything that is made, everything that is made is born out of the character of God. Creation is a reflection of the character of God. And I've got, that's correct, right? Creation is a character, is an expression of the character of God. Therefore, everything in creation has to express his nature. Therefore, the worst among us can't be entirely bad. The worst among us, the Hitlers, have to have something at the essence of their being which is an expression of the goodness of God. And for that reason, it is inconceivable that they be beyond restoration and that they would not be restored. That's unthinkable. It is this apokatastasis that is the essence, the, the, if you will, the philosophical underpinning of this whole idea. Apokatastasis is then connected to the word panton, which is all. So it's the, it's the restitution of all things from the high place which they were, from which they fell in the fall, back to the high place which God would want. Uh, another verse that is really essential is Ephesians 1, uh, verses 9 through 12. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he proposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So the summing up of all things. That's Again, that's the philosophical underpinning of this idea. It sounds really good. It's very attractive. Solves a 
A lot of dilemmas for a lot of people about the nature of our God. It certainly removes a barrier that a lot of people have in, in turning to God. They, they don't want to come to a big, mean God. They want to come to a God that truly is love in all of his actions, right? One pastor wrote in expre expressing his, uh, if you would use the word conversion, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's, he, he, he's, he's bought into the idea of universalism. And he, he said it started out with his deep and abiding concern for the falling numbers in the Western church. People, by some counts, leading the Western church. They're dissatisfied with the message of the Western church. And he found that when he talked to people, it was their dissatisfaction with this big, mean God. And um, how they would much rather have a story. And this is what he, what he literally said. This is the basis for his change in what he, what he believed. He literally said, people really want a story with a happy ending. Simple as that. Who doesn't? Like happy endings, right? So that's that's the basis of what we're talking about here. Um, that's where the energy for this idea comes from. Calling people to a God who truly is love and the story always ends well. Um, and then you add to that, part of, of the teaching of this particular doctrine is the idea that it actually is, because that sounds strange, sounds strange to us, right? Like, where did this idea come from? Well, it's presented as, as being, that's what the early church actually taught. And when this is presented to you, if you read it or if you hear it, um, listen to something on, you know, on YouTube or whatever, that this is what the early church actually taught. And that what happened was, uh, in the development of the organized church, as the organized church, whether it be you know, the Orthodox church centered in you know, Constantinople or the Roman church in Rome or wherever, uh, as they started to try to draw in the masses and, and there was resistance to the, the call to... Um, to Christ, they found that if they had the threat of eternal damnation, it made the, uh, the call much more persuasive, right? Th that's how the storyline goes. And so this was actually, we're told, the idea of, of a God who would restore everything, forgive everyone, was actually at the heart of the original church. Well, what are the problems uh, in, this, in this doctrine? Well, first off, right off the bat, any doctrine that rejects something, any teaching that rejects something, that the church has held kind of across denominational lines. Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, every group within the Protestant church. To reject a doctrine that's been held for almost 2,000 years by the entire church, we should have some pause before we go there. I mean, I think the bar for throwing out a doctrine of the entire church would be kind of high. Now, that doesn't mean the church can't have a doctrine that's wrong. Well, the church can have a doctrine that's wrong. Doctrine's not scripture, right? Word of God is without flaw. Our doctrines can be wrong. Before we throw them out, they take some really serious evaluation. Another problem with this teaching um, is it's based entirely upon uh, an argument of convenience. Now, that may not be a phrase familiar to a good many of you. An argument, it's, it's a rhetorical term. And there's a lot of different explanations for what an argument of convenience is. Essentially, it's a backwards argument, right? Um, if you want to establish a doctrine, for example, the person of Christ, who is the person of Christ, what do you do? Well, you gather all the data, and the data are, is Scripture. You, you gather all the things that are said in Scripture about Jesus, that he said about himself, others said about him, and you glean from that who he is. And you take all the things that are said about Jesus, that's all the data, and you draw a conclusion, he's God. He's man and God. So we build the doctrine we call the Christology from what we observe from the data. Well, an argument of convenience does it the other way. 
The argument of convenience starts with the conclusion and looks back at the data to find data that supports the conclusion. Another way to illustrate this would be if you can imagine, a, you know, like a, an investigator, like with the police investigating a crime. I mean, the way we would hope they would do it would be to collect all the evidence and then ask the question, who does it point to? You know, who's the, who's the culprit, right? An argument of convenience would be uh, for the police to pick out a suspect first and then go look for evidence that would convict them, right? It, it's not inherently wrong, it just is prone to a lot of error. For example, one of the errors of the argument of convenience is any data that doesn't support the answer you've chosen, you tend to overlook. It just doesn't count. I had this experience. I was talking with somebody that believed in universalism, has adopted it, and I said, well, how about that verse in John, in John 3.18? He who does not believe stands condemned already. I said, to my ear, that sounds kind of like a permanent status, you know? And the answer was, well, I don't think we understand that verse. Period. End of sentence. There was no consideration of what that verse was about. Just not interested. And, and so stuff that, stuff that doesn't support the hypothesis, you just throw it out. Even more insidious in this, in this flaw in logic is where there is something, there is a piece of data that could support your idea. That's the only way you see it. You don't see other possible explanations. Again, this word all, Pamton, is very important in universalism. Whenever it's said that God did anything for all people. Because all means what? All. Is it always that simple? You know, if I, if I go in the kitchen during the week in the cafe and I see this mountain of dirty dishes, I say, okay, I want all the dishes washed now. What do I mean? I mean I want all the dishes that are in our kitchen washed. I do not want the crew, after they finish those, to high on down to Turkey Red and tackle theirs. And when you're done with that, you know, noisy goose. No. That's all the dishes, though. No, it's understood I'm talking about a group. This is where context is so important. If you look at the passages of Scripture, and again, we're just going to go over this really quickly this morning. There's a whole lot of turf. You can do your own research. When that phrase is occurring, like in the passage we just read from Ephesians and from Acts, all is in the context of all believers. Right? Not all. So there's a real problem with the way the whole argument is structured. We can go on. There's some more problems, though. Um, another one, another problem to talk about is they really misrepresent church history. Now, probably you're not like into, really into church history. I am. Uh, the early church fathers, those people that wrote in the first few centuries, you will hear two names repeatedly in this discussion of universalism. You'll hear the name Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. And you will hear without without any hesitation that these two guys are the real founders of universalism. They taught that everybody gets saved, right? And I've, I've gotten into this like knee-jerk response now. Whenever I hear that, or if I read it, or however it comes at me, I ask the question of the person speaking or the book that I'm reading or whatever I want. Okay, great, quote them. Haven't got one yet. I haven't had a single person yet that supports this idea able to tell me where Origen actually supports this, or where Gregory of Nyssa actually supports it. I mean, at least give me a footnote so I can go find it. Because, you know, I got the books on my shelf. I can do that. But I'm not getting anything. And the reason being, that's not exactly what they said. They've said things, both Gregory and Origen, have said things that can be taken that way. But it's also important to understand 
There was a different style of writing and a different style of reasoning in the third and fourth century. These guys had a way of like putting a doctrinal statement out there that they never intended to be taken doctrinally. They would put it out, it was like, you know, run the idea up the flagpole and see who salutes it kind of a thing, right? They'd put an idea out there and see what the response was. It was the process that they were still in. And so, for example, Gregory of Nyssa, who does write some things that can be taken in support of the idea that, hey, everybody's getting saved. In one of his sermons where he was speaking to a church that had a real problem with people backsliding, he asked a rhetorical question. Who will save you from the fire that is never extinguished and from the worm that never dies? That's not how a universalist preaches. So there's been a real serious misrepresentation of the early church fathers and the early church. The idea does not go back to the earliest church. You find no connection at all. Even if you accept Origen and Gregory and the handful of others, even if you accept that, you've got silence from there, third, fourth century, all the way to the 1700s. Nobody taught it. Realistically, it's an idea that really came out in the 1700s expanded in the 1800s, and has really flourished in the two centuries since then. So a real misrepresentation of, the, of, the church, of church history and of the early church fathers. Even more important, though, that, that's kind of ancillary, even more important is the failure to consider the consequences. Whenever you, you know, craft a new doctrine, there's, there's downstream consequences. What else does it mean? This phrase, apokatastasis, uh, the restoration of all things, if you truly take it, and people that, that believe in universalism, they're on both sides of this issue. If you truly take it as the restoration of all things, who does it include? Satan himself and the fallen angels. Because the same logic that they apply to every man, woman, and child ever born applies to Satan. The same interpretation of those verses applies equally to Satan and the fallen angels. Now, some people who follow universalism aren't ready to go that far, but they can't give you a good explanation as to why. Because it's a logical conclusion of, their, of what they're teaching, right? There's an effect on our understanding of salvation. You know, when, I, when I've talked to people that haven't heard of universalism, and I, I've introduced the topic, you know, Christians that I've just talked to. Hey, have you heard about this? What do you think? The first words out of their mouth every time. So why the cross? Why the cross? If everybody gets saved anyway, because God's nature is to save everyone, to redeem everything, then why the cross? Puts the cross itself into question. More importantly, I would say uh, more easily demonstrated is the fact that it puts into question the entire issue of the Holy Spirit. I was talking with, with someone about this issue, and I raised, up, raised a passage of Scripture that they didn't agree with, and the answer was, well, that's because you're being too literal interpretation of Scripture. And then, and then this was said, what we really need to have is an Emmaus Road approach to Scripture. I said, okay, what's that? It's only in, right? I mean, I know what the Emmaus Road thing is about, right? The day of the resurrection, a couple of guys are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're freaking out because of the crucifixion and the empty grave, and people are talking about seeing Jesus, and they don't know what to make of anything, right? They're just confused. You can read about it in Luke's Gospel. And somebody appears next to them, and he starts explaining things to them, and then poof, he's gone. And then they realize it was Jesus. And they go, that, now we understand. 
And he opened up their understanding, right? That's what we're told. In order to understand universalism, we need an Emmaus Road approach to Scripture. So I asked them one question. I said, are you aware of the fact the Emmaus Road experience happened before the day of Pentecost? There was no other way they could have understood it because they did not have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them to reveal Scripture as we are promised in Scripture, He will. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is not a secondary issue. To be quite frank, it is the reason that God would dwell in His people by His Spirit, that each and every one of us would have a living relationship with God through the person of His Spirit. That's why the crucifixion happened. He did not die so that we could be freed from our sins and go on our merry way, you know, independent of, of the Father. No. Christ died for us that we could return to relationship with the Father. And that happens by the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And that is every believer that turns to faith, God in faith. Universalism, you don't need that. Because everybody's going to get saved anyway. Finally, universalism is a surrender to a humanistic worldview. It's making what we want as people the standard by which theology, by which our understanding of God. As that one pastor said, people want a happy ending. we got to give it to them. Is that our standard for truth? You know, one thing about that whole argument of convenience thing I talked about, if you really want to see that in action, just listen at the dinner table. They're a great way to win family arguments. Works like a charm. It's just a lousy way to come to truth. If we desire truth, our standard is not what people want to hear. Our standard is God's word. And the idea that I'm going to, I'm going to rewrap eternity so that people will be drawn to it, that, that's not, not the direction we want to go. So we, we've kind of defined it. We've talked about the problems with it. But this, this last point that I want, to, I want to speak about the truth, even if it's hard to understand, hard to accept, the truth is always best. Because let's be honest, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, I struggle with the idea of, I mean, maybe somebody that never heard the gospel. Or maybe they even heard the gospel, but they heard it in an environment. Maybe they were in a home that was totally wrong, and they had the gospel presented in a way that was totally wrong, and all they can associate with it is pain. God can hold that person responsible. I struggle. Probably like we all do with those issues, right? And yet, Scripture's pretty clear. Those who reject Christ, eternity is without him. It's without him. To be honest with you, when I was like putting together these notes, and I put that third point down, you know, the truth is always better, I had no idea what to put after it. I did. How, how to make this positive. I, I, I got to that point in my notes, great, what am I going to write here? How do, how do I turn the idea of accepting that somebody might go into eternity, which is eternity, without God, in torment? Like, how do I make that a positive thing? Right? And I was, I was sitting and I was meditating and um, a name popped into my head that was not the name I expected. It was not the kind of name I expected, you know? I expect, again, I got this big selection of early church fathers behind my chair. I thought, I'm going to find something back there that's really going to explain this and make it easy, and boom, we're going to be done. And the name that came to my mind was John Steinbeck. 
not a theologian. I don't think he was even a believer, right? If you're familiar at all, though, with the writings of Steinbeck, what do we know about his endings? They were horrible. I, did, he, did he ever write a book that had a nice ending? I don't think he did. They were horrible. To this day, Victoria has not forgiven me when I, hey, why don't you sit down with me and watch of Mice and Men, and I didn't warn her about the ending. She has, she's holding it against me still. Right? It's a horrible ending. Grapes of Wrath sold 14 million copies. Is all people want happy endings? So I started to think about that. That Shakespeare guy. Some of his endings are not so good. Hamlet is messed up. Macbeth is wretched. And yet, again and again and again. I'm not sure what people want is always a happy ending. What they want is the truth. And what they want, I, I even called Victoria about this because she's a lot more literary than I am. She reads tons of stuff. And um, she's never bought into the idea, you know, that the whole idea of the tragedies, which are a Greek idea, um, that they have this cathartic thing that you experience when you read a story with a horrible ending and out of your pain you feel better. I don't, I don't buy it either. It's never worked for me. You know, tragedies are tragedies, right? You feel rotten at the end. I said, so what's the popularity? And immediately she said, you can relate to it. A story with a brutal ending that's an honest story is a story you can relate to. Okay. You know, you live, you, you've got a family that's got a lot of drama and a lot of problems. Yeah, Hamlet works. Right? You get caught up in, a, in people competing for power and that, that kind of ugliness. Yeah, Macbeth rocks. Yeah, you can relate to it. So I sat there and I started to think, okay, well, that's all well and good, but that doesn't really help me because just knowing that I can relate to the pain of this situation doesn't, doesn't help me come to terms with a God who would consign someone to eternal torment. And then I thought about it this way. It does. It does help me relate to a God that could assign someone to eternal torment. You ask most people, how do you want to feel? You want to feel close to God, what do you do? I go for a walk in the woods, right? Go outdoors, enjoy beauty. Or I, I have a great time of worship, either listening to some worship music or, or singing, and those are both really good. You want to really get close to the heart of God? Pray for someone really close to you. That is not headed in the right direction. And let the pain of the reality of where they may find themselves begin to enter your heart. And you will identify with God. You will begin to understand the weight of eternity. I would rather have that truth than a lie any day of the week. Because that truth will motivate me to go where I probably would not go otherwise. That truth will motivate me to pray in a way I shouldn't, I wouldn't pray otherwise. That, that, will, that truth will motivate me to communicate with that person in a way I wouldn't communicate otherwise. That is why it is so essential that we recognize the reality of eternity. It is not heaven after hell. It's heaven or hell. Father, I thank you that you um, 
First of all, Father, you provided a way for us, Father. Because um, however we would imagine hell in our minds, that's where all of us were headed. It certainly is, Father, where I was headed until you intervened in the person of your son. Father, um, as attractive as it might be to, be to think that, yeah, everybody gets there, we're all good. I know that's not true. And I know that that is, in fact, a violation of your character. I don't want to spend eternity with the devil, Lord. I don't want to spend it with you. So, Father, as we process all this, and there's an awful lot here, Father, I know for us to process, in a world that does make demands on us to bring a gospel that conforms to the world's expectations, to make the gospel acceptable, to make it popular, Father. We want to see people uh, in relationship with God. We know, Father, there are some very real realities that we have to embrace, Father, even if they're painful and difficult. So, Father, as we think about those close to us, as we take the time, as we, as we, as we run that emotional risk to really think about where those are that are close to us that are not close to you, Father, it would change the way we conduct ourselves toward them, Father. We will pray for them in a way we have never prayed for them before. We will speak to them, Father, in ways we would not otherwise have spoken, Lord. And we will give our absolute all to lead them to a genuine understanding of the God who is love, the one who poured out his life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.